Thank you. Um, so as if that text is not intense enough, uh, I would feel remiss not to begin our time of teaching uh, directly addressing the events that happened in our capital this past week. And um, yeah, after much discussion with leaders in our community, with, with many of you, um, look, you don't, you don't need me to condemn what happened. The storming of uh, a government building, the disruption of our democratic process is not something that you need me to say uh, is, is wicked and awful and um, for many of us unimaginable. Yet, it's the fact that that was in any way done in the name of Jesus that I really feel like is worth addressing. Uh, it wasn't lost on many people that uh, that Wednesday when all this went down was epiphany. And we, we briefly addressed epiphany last Sunday, but what, what epiphany is, is it's really the wrapping up of the Advent season, and it's the celebration of the coming of the Magi to worship at, at, uh, at the manger. And what that story and what epiphany is particularly meant to celebrate is the fact that the Magi's encounter with the lowliness of this child that had been announced as the king of the world actually caused them to, if you remember the story, it causes them to actually pull back on their commitment to Herod, to return and share what they see. And so it is very much a turning away from the manipulative, violent, ruthless power of Herod, given this encounter with this humble, lowly king. And the fact that that same lowly, humble, crucified, now risen Savior's name would be used in any way to defend the actions that happen on Wednesday um, is, should sadden us and should um, and is something worth denouncing. Many have also noted that the, that the idea that this does not represent us, whoever us is, whether that's America or whether that's us, even as Christians, is also something that I would pretty strongly warn us. Um, uh, yeah, we, we, we can't distance ourselves from this because the, the reality is that what we saw on Wednesday is precisely, it is precisely the trajectory of the kinds of pitfalls that our current political moment uh, creates for us as Christian people. There is a trajectory. In our disciples, I just kept thinking of, and, and even in talking about this with our leaders, just kept returning to the fact that we just did a discipleship course. And part of that discipleship course was dealing with distinctly Christian political engagement. And we said that the results of this election, this was before the election, that the results of this election would almost certainly be a great threat to Christian unity in general and to the unity of our specific church. And so we laid out some principles that we said are uh, thoroughly, thoroughly biblical and especially relevant for the kind of moment that we're in. And in thinking about those principles, I couldn't help but continue thinking, what happened on Wednesday, especially to whatever extent it was done in the name of Jesus, is the is is like in high definition 
extreme uh, visual of the violation of those very principles that we put out. And to the extent that all of us should feel challenged by the scripture's call to what discipleship looks like in this realm, we should be, we should pause rather than just say, oh, that was a bunch of wahoos or whatever. Who cares? Um, I would never do something like that. So here, here are the principles that we work through. We said that political engagement is a discipleship issue. We cannot leave our commitment to Jesus at the door when we begin to engage in this realm. Now, we have to be careful, though, because uh, what we said was that we are more formed by our political engagement often than we actually have influence as Christians in the political sphere. We are more formed by it. And so the fact that Jesus' name was brought into this, one, shows that it was a discipleship issue, and two, the way that we are formed by the way that we take in these, these various influences, whether that's media or conversations or our own echo chambers or whatever it is, these things are forming our hearts and affections. These things are forming what we think are most significant in the world, what we think we need to be caring most about and defending at whatever cost, at, at whatever level those, those affections go to. And so to think that we can either leave our political allegiances behind when it comes to who we are as Christians, or the opposite, that we can leave who we are as Christians behind when we go in the political sphere, is, is just a massive mistake. That these two things um, are mutually informing each other. Now, here's the principle that's, that's maybe the most significant one is, we must remember, my goodness, we must remember that our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. It is to Jesus. It is not to a political party. It is not to a political system. And it is not to a specific nation. Our allegiance is to, we bow the knee ultimately only to him. That our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. And therefore, when our political engagement causes us to do things that compromise the clear ethical demands of our actual master and Lord, a giant alarm bell should go off. Now, whether that's, whether that's in the way that it was done very dramatically this week or whether it's in more subtle ways of even the ways that we within our community, we on social media engage these things. We need to be careful to say which identity right now is having more say in my thoughts, in my affections, and in my actions. Is it my allegiance to Jesus or is it in how strongly I believe that I'm right when it comes to this or that issue? The next principle was, as Christians, our fundamental identity in this world is as sojourners and exiles. This is something that the New Testament says again and again. This is something that the letter of James has said to us again and again. Why is that significant? It's significant because the New Testament never sets us up to expect that Christians will be ascendant, that we will sit in positions of power in this world. In fact, it sets us up for the exact opposite. We are sojourners. We are exiles. The way that we are called to live is at odds with the power and ways of this world. And therefore, 
when we find ourselves, again, whether it's dramatically like we saw or whether it's, it's whatever version of that, whatever scale that is in our own hearts, when we find ourselves fighting to maintain worldly power, alarm bells should be going off in, in our mind, which is, are we defending the right things when we're actually expected to be exiles in this world? Are we holding on to worldly position and significance and influence when those are things that Christians at best are asked to hold with open hands? And finally, we said that the appropriate posture of a Christian in the political sphere is engaged prophetic distance. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Engage. We're not called to disengage. We're not called to not care about these things and say, well, right, this is this is the first couple of principles. We can't say, this would be my temptation to say, ugh, I don't do politics, right? Like if you can't see that the political sphere is deeply, deeply impacting you and your neighbors and people you care about and even our church, then you're just not paying attention. So we must be engaged, but we must be engaged with what we called in decourse, and I don't have time to go through all the scriptures that we, that we used in all these, but what we called prophetic distance. In other words, I can be engaged. I can I can have a political commitment. I can tend towards one or other political party, but I must have enough distance from them because of my ultimate allegiance to Jesus that I can see where they fall short, where I can see that they do not completely line up, where I do not completely line up in my political views with the distinctiveness, with the otherworldliness of the kingdom of God itself. And so if you found yourself, if I found myself this week only ever saying, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like whoever, I'm not like those people that, that did that in Washington, or I'm not like these people who can't see that we're in no better place just because another political party is, if all we did was spending that, we are like the people. And this is where God convicted me this week. We are like the people in the very story that Jesus told of a Pharisee who stood and said, thank you, God, that I am not like that guy. And Jesus said, that one did not go home justified. There is no vindication before God in that kind of attitude. Instead, it was the one who said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, who is able to actually do the harder thing, which is self-examination, right? This was a week, if anything, Jacob's well. This is a week where I found myself exploring my iceberg, to use some shared language that, that we have as a community, exploring what was going on in my heart, the anger that I felt, the the way that I felt misunderstood at times, the way that I wanted to react. If, if we can't pause as, as Jesus people with the spirit of God in us and to examine our own hearts before even as we sang, throwing heavy stones at them, then we are not being the distinct people that Jesus has actually called us to be. Because look, Right? There's a lot of talk about America failing and all of those things. And whatever your definition of America failing might be, whether that's the other party taking over or, or whatever that is, should America fail, whatever that means, please note the gospel has not. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall. Nations come and nations go. And this idea that the gospel is at stake in whether or not America does this or that, that is freighting 
way too much on a kingdom of this world. The gospel will endure. The gospel will remain distinct in this world and have power and influence in this world. The gospel has survived and even thrived in far more divisive and oppressive empires than this one. And it is precisely often in such places that the gospel thrives. And here's my fear for us and here's my fear for the church that we have so entangled those two things that we will really despair in a way that we need not when Jesus is still on his throne, when his people, if we are willing to actually take stock of ourselves, to repent and move forward differently, when this is actually an opportunity for our witness to be, to be as powerful as it's ever been in this country. And so let's not do this thing. Where, where we are so entangled, whatever you want to call it. Some, some have called it uh, Christian nationalism. Um, you can think of it as, you know, people defending uh, what we have discussed in discipleship courses, white, whiteness, white supremacy. When these things are so deeply entangled together, my goodness, how can our witness be distinct in the world? And yet if we're willing to repent and look inward and not just throw stones and say, no, that's them, that's them, that's them. But to look inward and say, this is where this, this is why we've been doing this hard work, Jacob's Well. Don't let this moment be the thing that tears at the hard work, the unifying, reconciling work that imperfectly we have done. We have not arrived in this, but do not let this moment be what tears apart. The gospel, Jesus is still good, y'all. Jesus is still powerful. Jesus is still on the move and he is still working in his church to advance his glory in this world. Let's be a part of that. Let's be a part of that work. And it starts with us. It starts with self-examination. It starts, and, and here's what it also, it starts with prayer, guys. We got to pray. We have to be people of prayer. If, if you spent a lot of time this week thinking about this and reading about this and ruminating on this and talking to people about this and spent absolutely zero minutes in prayer on this, let that convict you. Right? If that's the only thing that convicts you, we have to be people of prayer. The Bible actually calls us to pray precisely for these things and in these moments. So if that's the only way that we're to think, oh Lord, let it be that we would be people of prayer in this. So here's, uh, I guess here's my final word. Pray, examine your own hearts, uh, love each other well, check in on each other, how, see how each other is doing. One of the things that I heard most was just, just the clear the clear dichotomy that so many people felt between the way that the peaceful protests were handled and, and the amount of force that was used uh, there versus what was seen in these, in these wildly disturbing images, right? And what that says about uh, the reality of racism, the reality of, um, of how power is used differently in this. Check in on each other and say, hey, how are you doing, right? There are people weeping in our community because of that. Let's lament that like we've learned to do. But my last encouragement would be, but don't despair. Don't despair. This is not a moment for despair. This is a moment for hope. Not in this nation, not in a political, this is a moment for hope in Jesus. Cling to him. He is sufficient grace for you in this time. And he is sufficient if we will repent and pray and turn and live in the distinct righteousness that he calls us to where Jesus' name can be made much of, even, and I would argue, especially in a moment such as this. With that, I'm now going to turn to this incredibly simple passage that God providentially has us in.
<laughs> this morning, check out this passage that just so happens to be where God would want us. We are in James chapter 5, and it says this. Come now, come now. Uh, Tyler said last week that this come now is a sort of like, are you kidding me? And James, having gotten through all of what we've been discussing in this, um, is now going to call out the absurdity of believing that we could possibly live faithfully in the wisdom that he has been dishing out up until this point in the letter, that we could possibly live all that out while also being self-indulgent, while also stepping on other people for our own game, while living luxuriously. And so that come now is meant to, to waken us up. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. All right, then. What's he saying? First of all, the the biggest thing to note here is uh, this is language that it seems like is is it's James trying to get us to jump forward to the end of the story in order to change how we're behaving in the midst of the story. All this language that he's using is talking about the judgment that awaits us and the way that that judgment will go down by those who flaunted uh, their, their wealth and power, those who took advantage of other people in doing that, and those who, who basically put their hand up to God and said, no, uh, I'm good. Um, he says, if you don't understand what that will cost you ultimately, you will wrongly invest, to purposely use a pun there, you will wrongly invest now. Because this language that he's using, come now you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. That howl, miseries, that's language that almost exclusively, if you look for it in the rest of the scriptures, it almost exclusively shows up in the Old Testament prophets. It's what the prophets are constantly trying to get the people of God to do in in moments like, honestly, like we're in right now. To say, when when the people of God have fallen so deeply from their commitment to the uniqueness of who God calls to be, to the love ethic that's at the heart of what it means to be the people of God, the only right response is to howl, is to wail in repentance because of how we know God will one day judge that kind of behavior in the world. If God comes to make all things new, as we say often as a church, part of making things new will be the destruction of that which belongs to the old, broken, decaying world, such as it is. And so he says, you're either going to weep and howl then, Or you need to weep and howl now. Where he's getting this, as he's getting so much of the wisdom in his letter, is he's not just making this up, James. He's getting this directly from the teaching of Jesus. Flip with me quickly to the Gospel of Luke. And listen to, this is Luke's rendering of what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. He says this. This is Jesus' words, of course. I'll start in verse 21. Luke 6, verse 21 said, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. 
Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. It's almost like you want a text to speak to our current moment as, as a nation, as the people of God. Hard to do better than the words of Jesus there. But what's he saying? He's saying, look, what, what's coming is such a total upending, quite literally, of the dynamics of this world. That those who are laughing now will weep then. Those who are full and content now will, will be judged and will mourn then. And so what's the solution to that? It's pretty obvious. It's just good logic. It's, well, we need to be among those who are willing to mourn and weep for this world. We, we need to be those who, like Jesus, set aside our comfort and security on behalf of others are willing to embrace difficulty now in order to be a part of that vindication, of that being justified on that day. So James is just picking up that language. He's saying a good way to tell those who will be laughing and celebrating and dancing on that day, he says, who's weeping over the brokenness of this world? Who's mourning now? Who's intentionally seeking to love and serve this world, to do their part in upending the dynamics of the world at great cost to themselves. And there you will find those who on that day will be laughing and dancing and celebrating when the world is set right. He says, your gold and your silver have corroded, verse 3, back in James 5, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You hear the judgment language in that. That precisely the things that you held back, that could have loved and served others, and here he's talking specifically about material goods, they will be witnesses. They will be, they will be uh, given as evidence, exhibit A, on that day in judgment for whether you were ultimately bowing and, and had your allegiance in the kingdom of God or whether that allegiance was in the kingdoms of this world. You see, you've laid up treasure in the last days. This is how the New Testament thinks about this entire time that we're living in. This is not specifically about a, a certain period of time that Christians try and predict what the last days we're living in them. And that's not to say that, that I know anything more than you do about when Jesus will come, other than the New Testament makes it very clear. These are the last days. What are the last days? Anything that stands between the resurrection of Jesus and when he comes again. And during that time, the opportunity that God is giving us is to be people of repentance who live differently in this world, who participate in what Jesus will bring on that day when he comes again, such that when he comes, we are not part of that which he destroys, but we are part of that which endures. Verse 4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out. Again, this crying out. Cry, there's a lot of crying out in this against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. 
when we read a passage like this, uh, many of us are tempted to say, Whew, well, I'm not rich. Um, they're rich. I'm not rich. And whoever you're there rich is. And just couldn't more strongly discourage us from reading that passage this way. In fact, there's some, there's some commentators who even want to get out of this to say, surely James wouldn't talk this harshly to Christians. He must be talking to non-Christians. And this is basically a performance to a bunch of relatively, I mean, at this time, he is almost certainly writing to a group of relatively poor uh, Christians. He's kind of shown off. He's kind of showing them like, look, I get it. I don't, I don't like those people any more than you do. And this just stands against, uh, to me, that's that kind of interpretation, it just doesn't hold up. Jesus spoke this harshly to his own. The prophets spoke this harshly to their, and there's harder stuff in this letter, frankly, than this. I think that this one just hits us, especially as Western American uh, people. It just hits us where we say, oh, I, I, what if, what if that is me? Well, what, how do we know if this is us? Is it a certain income? Is it a certain lifestyle? Well, I think that this passage has some clues. The first thing that it's saying here is um, th this word is for us. I wouldn't even say if. I would say when we are willing to put our comfort and advancement and security above the well-being of others. When we are willing to manipulate, take advantage of, step on other people in order to preserve our own lifestyle and way of life. And there's ways that all of us find ourselves complicit in that kind of behavior, whether it's ways in which we seek promotion at work or ways in which we cut corners to, to you know, kind of preserve our income or, or ways in which um, we just aren't faithful in, in paying back debt. And whether that's big debt, you know, big government debt, or just small things. You know, even in praying through this passage, God brought like little debts that I have that I've just been holding off on, on really following through on. Um, these are moments where we are prioritizing our relative security over being faithful with what God has put into our hands to steward. And then there's much, frankly, there's, there's much more, um, yeah, there's, there's just deeper versions of this that some of us need to examine our hearts. Some of us have gotten so used to this being the manner in which we Whatever language you use to rationalize it in, in your heart, whatever I use to rationalize it in my heart, where we do things to preserve our lifestyles, to preserve our financial well-being that are knowingly destructive to other people. What's profound in this text is it says that the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is literally one of the only times in the New Testament, we actually saw this, um, that the hosts of God showed up when, when Jesus was born, showed up to the shepherds, and we said, this isn't a choir. This isn't, you know, a symphony in, in their in their black and white, you know, uh, garb for, for, the, for the Met Opera or something. These are warriors. These are warrior angels, whatever that means. It's why anytime they show up, they're freaked out. Calling God the Lord of hosts is very rare. And you could almost argue this is the only place where it's said in exactly this. Why say it here? He's saying because those who are who are perceived as voiceless in their world, in this world, their voices reach the ear of the commander of those armies. They have a defender. They have a cosmic judge who will one day vindicate their cause. It's one of the most profound statements about God's nearness 
to the marginalized, God's nearness to the oppressed. And I know that there's a lot of conversation even around that right now, but it's unmistakably biblical. I love what one uh, what one great New Testament scholar, Richard Baucom, British dude, says about this. Is he says, um, God secures justice for those denied it by the powerful, those of whom the rich so often take advantage. In other words, it is precisely God's impartiality that requires his specific action on behalf of the poor. Did you get that? It is precisely God's impartiality that requires his specific action and defense and nearness and hearing of the poor. And so, look, I say this in two ways. One is those little ways in which we take advantage of other people, in, in which we stomp on people, while they might be unseen by others, by, by the authorities, whatever it is, they're not unseen by God. Here's the other thing. When you feel someone else's foot upon you, when you feel like, does no one see what's actually going on? Does no one actually care enough? that I am being treated the way that I'm being treated, right? Questions that were even asked this week as laments were sent up. Does nobody see? Does nobody care? Does God not act? Those cries are reaching the ear of the Lord of hosts, the commander of the heavenly armies. His ear. Hear how personal that is? It's one of the, one of the most... Ready for a fancy word? One of the most anthropomorphical uses of God, right? It's, it's, make, it's, it's helping us see this nearness of God by saying his ear is attentive to those cries. Next thing, verse 5. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. There's that, there's that end, end times judgment language. You have fattened yourself. It's like by living the way that he's saying you've, you've lived. Here's what would happen back in those days. You'd want to throw a party. Remember, like, those, those of you familiar with the scriptures, in the story of the prodigal son, <clears throat> when the son comes back home, the father's so excited, what do they eat? They eat the fattened calf, right? Here's, here's what that means. You go outside, you look around, you say, which of our cows has been eaten especially good? And you say, that's the one that we're going to slaughter and eat. It says, if you live this way, you, you, you might be uh, happy and fulfilled in this life, but all you're going to be on the judgment is you're going to stand out for slaughter. Like, not my words. <laughs> Those are biblical words. And it defines it as you lived in luxury and self-indulgence. In other words, I, I love... Uh, Several people have said this. Um, I'll credit it to, to Tim Keller in New York City because he's the one that I heard it first from. But a really good way to define this is if every single time your income and earning power increases, if every single time your lifestyle increases in exact proportion to the increase of your income, you are likely choosing luxury and self-indulgence over what the scriptures would cost to, which is increased generosity. I know that hits me like a ton of bricks, is we are so quick to say, the more that I bring in, obviously that's for me and for me to live a more whatever fill in the, life, fill in the blank lifestyle you believe that you are worthy of, that should give us pause. So often we see this at the highest ranks with, with you know, people whose earning power is way above ours and we say, I would never. And what we don't realize are there are those with less earning power, with less income than us, who look at our lifestyles and say, I would never be so indulgent. This is something that lives in the human heart. 
The dreams of a follower of Jesus who see generosity as the very heart of God. Our dreams should at least partially include generosity. When was the last time that you said genuinely, man, when I make more money, I just can't wait to be more generous. No, instead what we do is again, we go up the scale like 10 times. We're like, if I hit the Powerball, first thing I would do, I'd buy a house for this person. I'd give this much to the church. I'd give this much. And then an extra 10% comes in. our. And the last thing that we're thinking is, oh my goodness, I get to give more. Now look, I'm preaching myself here. Again, I was hit by this this week. We just don't, our hearts are so inclined toward these things, toward self-indulgence and luxury that most of us don't dream generosity dreams. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, ending with, look, while these things might seem innocent enough to us, we do not realize that others are being harmed by our self-indulgence. That is the reality. Even if it's only because we are holding back the generosity that we could otherwise aid others with. What in the world is the hope in this? Like, if that, if those are the standards, who, who can stand in that judgment? Beautiful reality, right, of this passage, the the beautiful reality of the Christian faith is that God uses even this kind of passage precisely as a means of grace in our life. That he is calling us to repentance. He is waking us up. And yet, ultimately, this is not something that depends primarily on the extent to which you and I can drum up generosity within our own hearts. Because the reality is that the entire Christian faith is grounded upon one who fattened, who actually didn't fatten himself for slaughter, who completely and utterly emptied himself and yet was slaughtered still. And he was slaughtered so that you and I might have hope beyond the brokenness of our human hearts, of our broken, self-indulgent human hearts. He came to show us that actually giving oneself away is the very way that we were made to to live, that that is where true joy is actually found. And then by saving us and working on the inside out, he actually makes it possible for us to take steps away from the natural inclination of our human hearts and towards a kind of generosity that is so different, that is so distinct, that is so rare in this world, that even its its presence in seed form in our lives is something that God looks at and sees life in. Our tree at the end does not need to be filled with, with fruits of various kinds and be perfect in all those ways. I said this before, God is going to scratch the bark of our lives. And if there's green underneath, he's going to say that tree is alive. And so what, what abundant or little fruit there is, if there's fruit, it means there's life. And so the fact that you and I would even react today in repentance and say, man, I I need to whether it's what we were talking about at the beginning of this teaching time, whether it's here, that I would actually take steps to self-examine and maybe take not only a prayer of repentance, but bear fruit in keeping with repentance is a sign that there's something active in me other than self-indulgence and luxury is a sign that maybe God is birthing generosity in me where once there was only hoarding up for myself.
And so let this be an, let the conviction that I feel right now, let the conviction that you feel right now actually be a beautiful confirmation that there is something active within you, the very spirit of God, which you don't deserve and I don't deserve. And yet so it is because of what the ultimately generous one did in giving himself completely away. And would we see that as beautiful enough to say, while I might not get to the place where I am capable yet of completely emptying myself, opening my hand a little bit in these ways, God, would you help me see that that is beautiful, that that is actually what you made me for, not what everything within me tells me I was made for, comfort and security and luxury and these things, but God, giving myself away freely repenting, seeing my own sin, and then moving actually away from it. Because when we do that, what God is so often so faithful to do is he gives us joy in that, that then becomes this this beautiful cycle of, wait, I, I gave a little bit up and I'm okay. And I'm actually experiencing more joy and freedom than that. Maybe I could give up a little bit more. Maybe I could give up a little bit more. This is the work of sanctification in our lives. It's what he so desperately wants us to do. So let's be people of repentance, especially this week. Let's be people of lament. Let's be people who are able to say, man, if those cries of the oppressed and marginalized are reaching the ear of the Lord of hosts, they should certainly be reaching our ears. We should be capable of lament rather than always explaining away the pain of others. And then let's have hope because God is active. God is changing, self-indulgent, people who are spiritually dead into people that are actually alive and taking steps of repentance toward him. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God who changes us, that you don't just leave us um, in the heaviness and the conviction of a passage like this. But Lord, then you say, come on, let's let's move. Let's take steps um, in order for you to embrace the life that is now in us, the life that we pray that we would move toward. Lord, would none of us be so presumptuous that we would say, this certainly doesn't apply to me. Lord, whether that's uh, all that's happened this week, whether that's the particular power of this passage, God, help us be people who pause long enough to say, God, what, what are you saying in me? What are you saying to me by my response to these things? Lord, whether that's by my anger towards these things, my resistance to these things, my apathy toward these things. Lord, make us people of, of genuine self-examination that we would then be those who live generously, who live righteously, who live distinctly, who live as people of love. Lord, as one pastor even said this past week, um, it's really hard to figure out who's right right now, except that the scriptures make it pretty clear. Lord, your test of your people is love. It's cruciform love, as as that pastor said. It's love shaped by the cross. It's costly, self-sacrificial love. And I pray that they will know that we are Christians not by our political allegiance, not by our stance on any given issue. I pray that they would know that we are Christians by our love, which is grounded and sourced in your great unfathomable love for imperfect people like me. God, help us to see the good news on a week full of bad news and know that that good news is always only available in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
My, how I wish that we could approach the table now. Um, it would be a wonderful time to approach the bro broken body and, and blood poured out on our behalf. Uh, but we are going to approach each other um, now as we break into CCGs. Here's my encouragement. Um, first of all, just a reminder, please be praying. Please be praying. I would encourage at least one person to end this upcoming time with your uh, community care group in prayer for the events of this week. And look, here's what we can always pray. Sometimes we pray in order to kind of state our opinion on things and say, this is my view of it. This is what I think needs to be said. Here's what I know we can all pray. We're allowed to pray for our nation. We're called to pray for our nation. We're called to pray for our leaders, that they would govern justly and that justice would be done. I know that we can always pray that God would help us by his spirit examine our own hearts and lead us to repentance where that is necessary. And we are always allowed to pray for the unity of God's people, that we would be a people that do the hard work of listening well to each other, loving each other well, checking in on each other. And so just pray those, those three things. Um, if you find it difficult to, to figure out, man, what would it look like to faithfully pray? Uh, pray. And, and look, uh, the other thing I always think of is wisdom. It's right here in James. When we lack wisdom, how many of us feel like we lack wisdom right now? When we lack wisdom, we're allowed to pray for Yeah, amen. Uh, we lack wisdom. Um, we get to pray for it. And so wisdom, pray for our leaders, pray for unity uh, of God's people at least. Um, and, and so end your times that way. Uh, here's what we are going to do in, in CCGs is we are going to, um, just talk about last week, Tyler did such a wonderful job of calling us to self-examination, especially as we head into a new year. And so if there's ways in which over the past couple weeks, you've been, uh, thinking about what some new rhythms in your life might look like to connect with God, to connect with his people, uh, would love to share those just as an encouragement and challenge, um, for each other. Uh, and so that would be our, our main focus of these discussions this morning. And then just ending your time, it would just be lovely to know um, that, you know, a, a dozen of us prayed this morning in light of what's happened. That needs to be our first instinct increasingly.